This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. All right, so today we're kicking off a series called Unstoppable. And uh, I'm going to say just on the front end of the series, this is going to be a little bit different today because I'm kind of introducing the series. This is going to be more like a rally call, more of a, a pep rally of sorts. Now, you know, not so much, hey, this is your specific need. This is where you need to, uh, you know, kind of we want to speak to that specific need. But rather, in a more general sense, that God is inviting us corporately to be the church that he has called us to be. In John 10.10, Jesus uh, gives us this, uh, this, this little word that he says that he's come. The purpose of his coming is to give us life. But not just any kind of ordinary life, not just a simple life, not just a, a normal life, you know, because we can think he's come to give us life. We can think, well, that's, that's, I wake up every morning and I get to breathe. That's good. But it tells us he's come to give us an abundant life, a life that is beyond your imagination, beyond your dreams. And in fact, here at Life Church, we constantly have talked about how God has purposes and design for your life to go beyond what you possibly can even imagine in your own thinking. And it starts with just surrendering your life to Christ. Say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go after you. I'm going to chase after you so that I can fulfill the dream, the vision that you have for my life. We've talked about that all the time. But it's interesting in this passage in John 10, 10, Jesus, right before he says, I've come to give you life and life to the full or an abundant life. He says, there is a, an enemy who's come to kill steal and destroy now why would jesus put those two ideas in the same verse why would he why would he talk about the amazing life that you and i get to live and in many ways contrast it to to this enemy who is trying to steal kill and kill and destroy you take that life that you have except that what jesus is trying to tell us corporately all of us is that we are in a spiritual war now, I realize when I say that, some of you are in this room and say, yeah, I, duh, Rich. I get that. I mean, just look at my kids. The struggle that I'm having with my kids. Just look at the, just look at, you know, look at the, the circumstance I'm facing in my marriage. And you get it. You understand that you're in a spiritual war. But I think oftentimes it's easy for us to numb ourselves to the idea that we are in a spiritual battle. Maybe because, you know, the, the stuff that's going on in our office is not that significant. Maybe our, our income is good enough to kind of make us feel like everything is okay. And so we kind of live on that. Maybe it's because, you know, I, I'm comfortable. And so we, we numb ourselves, we busy ourselves with work and life and hobbies and TV shows and all that stuff, and it's easy to forget that you and I are in a spiritual battle. And that's really what I want to talk about in this series, is that we are in a battle. Now, I don't want to talk about it from the standpoint of like, be afraid, because <laughs> that's, that's not what the church is about. In fact, the, let me just be very clear about this. When I talk about a spiritual battle, when I talk about the enemy, what I am talking about is that we are discussing and talking about the victory that you and I have in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. That we are living a victorious life. Yes, there are battles going on. Jesus has won the war. There are battles going on. But you've won. You've won. And that's the direction that we're discussing. We're, we're, we're talking about fighting from a position of victory. This past summer on June 6th, um, the, we celebrated, the world celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. 
You know what D-Day is, right? When we, we, the Allied forces basically stormed the beaches of Normandy. Um, what you may or may not know about um, the U.S. and that we kind of learned in high school history is that for a long time, the United States tried to, to be neutral in this. They, it took them a while to engage in World War II. Um, they, uh, in many ways, were just trying to be, you know, hey, it's, it's over there. <laughs> it's not here. I get up every morning and the sun is shining. I get to go to the grocery store, buy my groceries. There's nothing, we're not missing anything. We're not missing out on anything. Everything is good. The battle, the war is over there. So why get involved? Let them take care of it. That's, that, was our, that was our position. And so what the, the truth is that whenever we're struggling with getting involved in something risky, it's easy to justify complacency. It's easy. It's easy to say, that's not my problem. It's easy to say that that's their problem. It's over there, it's not here. Why should I get involved? So in many ways, the, the U.S. was, was uh, they were isolationists. They were, they were trying to stay out of everything, right? It's easy to justify complacency over courage when, when things are risky until December 7, 1941 when uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and you've probably seen movies about it. Um, and so the U.S. engaged in a war at that point. D-Day happened two and a half years later, when uh, it was basically the beginning of the end of the war, when 150,000 troops, basically Allied troops, stormed the beaches of Normandy. Um, they... They, uh, they were in these boats called Higgins boats, these boats you see them coming off of. And these Higgins boats, when they would land on the beach, the ramp would come down, and immediately there would be this, I mean, rain down of machine gun fire, and they would have to just run with all of their might to get up to the beach, find cover, and, and avoid being, being killed. Hitler knew that the attack was going to happen somewhere along the French coast, and so he had fortified the French coast. He had built hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of bunkers all along the French coast. Over four million mines had been laid on the beach, on the, beach in, on the French coast. And so that day when these Allied forces attacked, the sacrifices were, were enormous. 10,000 lives died that very day on the beach. 10,000. Here's the thing. There's no way to defeat evil without engagement. There's no way. There's no way, there's no way we can live a neutral life and defeat evil. And that's really the lie of neutrality. The lie of neutrality is that somebody else will do it. Somebody else will engage. Somebody else can fight that fight, not me. I mean, it's easier to live with complacency and comfort over courage and, and, and for a cause. And so that's really the challenge of this series, is a challenge to reject complacency and live with courage. For you and I to reject complacency and start living with courage, to replace comfort with commitment. Because ultimately, our commitments, the commitments that we make and the commitments that we keep, that's what defines our life. If you, by the time you've reached my age, 55 and, and older, you look back and you realize 
what I am today is because there were commitments that I made down the road, past when I was in my 20s and my 30s. I made these commitments, and along the way, I kept those commitments, and now this is who I am. Or along the way, I didn't keep those commitments, and therefore, this is what's happened. And so the challenge is for us to make a commitment and keep that commitment and believe that God is going to use us to build his kingdom, to reject sitting and to embrace sacrificing because there's joy to be found when we give sacrificially of ourselves. No more, really this is the challenge, no more neutral living. Check your heart. Are you in neutral? You drive a stick, you know what I'm talking about. Put that thing in neutral and you press on the gas, you go nowhere. Are you in neutral? No more neutral. It's time for us to engage. We're calling this series Unstoppable because it speaks specifically to the mission of the church. You see, God has a purpose for the church. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Now, sometimes that's not how we feel because we see the obstacles. We are faced with challenges. We see difficulty in front of us. And sometimes even the challenges that we see in front of us, they seem impossible. And so we're not exactly sure that to say that the church is unstoppable is really factual for us. And yet it is. You need to understand that that's, and not, not because I say so, that's the tone of the New Testament. The tone of the New Testament is that of hope and determination that that God's kingdom is inevitable. It is going to happen. And we're a part of that. So no matter how many bunkers are lined up in the beach, no matter how how many landmines have been laid in your life, God's kingdom, God's kingdom, are you hearing me? The church of Jesus Christ is moving forward. It's advancing And so knowing this should change how we live. Knowing that his kingdom is inevitable should reorient our lives. Are you hearing me? So you might come here this morning, you sat here this morning, say this is just going to be church as usual. Go, I have a little feel-good thing happen because I got great worship and pastor said a couple things that really touched my heart. I'm going to walk out here and say, oh, I feel so good about myself. But that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is making inventory of our lives and asking ourselves this very, very important question. Are we living neutrally? Are we in neutral? Or are we engaged? We're going to look at Matthew 16 today. Um, Jesus is going to have a conversation with his disciples. And what I want you to notice in the passage that we're going to look at today is where Jesus says these words, okay, the location. In this particular case, geography really matters where Jesus actually said this thing, okay? He goes to a place called Caesarea Philippi. They are, at the, before they go to Caesarea Philippi, they've been hanging around the Sea of Galilee, and so the feeding of the 5,000, they cross over the Sea of Galilee, they're going to move on, and Jesus decides to take his disciples a 25-mile hike north to a town called Caesarea Philippi, a place that most people would never really want to go to. It's not a, it's not a pleasant place. It's a place of idol worship. It's a place of darkness. It's a place where there's these hedonistic acts that are taking place all the time. And so this is where Jesus chooses to bring his disciples and to have this conversation we're going to look at real quick in Matthew 16. And verse 13 says this. He starts off with a question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Essentially, the question is, who do people say that I am? Who do they think I am, you know? And so disciples kind of fumble around a little bit. You know, they're thinking about what they've been hearing, a lot of the rumor mill out there. And so this is what they say. This is how they respond. They reply, some say John the Baptist, and 
Probably Peter says, well, we know you're not John the Baptist because we've met John the Baptist. So we know you're not him. But others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. People are trying to figure out who Jesus is because he's just, it's, he's a strange cat. He's a guy that goes around healing sick people, doing amazing miracles. He just fed 5,000 people. And yet he doesn't act all arrogant about it. He doesn't go around and say, hey, my ministry, the ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he doesn't do that. And so people are trying to figure out, who is this guy? He's got to be one of the prophets of old who's come back to life again. And so this is what all the speculation. And then Jesus does this next, which is maybe a little bit unexpected. He kind of turns it all around. So almost like he kind of built it up so that he wanted them to answer that question because he wants them really to get to this question. He makes it personal. And I'm hoping that you will hear that this morning. This is personal. He's speaking to each one of us, and this is what he says to him. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And this is what Jesus does. He always makes it personal. So like, he's like, I know what your friends think. I know how your family feels. I know what's trending on social media, but, but I want to know what you think. Who do you say I am? That's what I want to know. And I realize that for some of you, making, you know, getting a little bit personal is not something that you really like. Like you like coming to church more for like information download. I come and I get information and I walk out and say, whoa, yeah. I learned something today. Or maybe it's because you like, you know, every once in a while we do series on marriages and stuff like that. And you think, well, you know, I'm going to get some marriage tips for my, for my marriage or for my future marriage or whatever. Or maybe it's just habit. Maybe you just come to church because you've always gone to church. That's just sort of what you do. It's kind of a religious thing you do, you know. But you need to know that Jesus is going to ask you, what do you think about me? The Holy Spirit is not going to let you sit too long here at Life Church. Before he corners you, looks you in the eye and say, okay, you've been here long enough. What do you think about Jesus? So Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And I don't know, maybe they were a little bit, they were caught off guard with the question. Maybe they're kind of wondering, you know, they don't know what to say. They're probably looking down at the ground, kind of kicking rocks around, you know. And John leans over to Peter and says, hey, Peter, you're always saying stuff. Why don't you say something now? Like, Answer his question, who do, you, who do we say he is, right? So Peter replies, and this is what he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let me translate that for us in a very grandiose way, but a very real and, and actual way. You are the savior of the world. That's a big statement. You are the savior of the world. So then Jesus replies to that statement. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, you didn't like have some, some uh, you know, amazing insight into me and all that stuff. You didn't figure this out on your own. This was revealed to you by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Greek, Petros, little rock, stone. And on this rock, Petra, that's the word there for that word rock. Peter is Petros, rock is Petra. 
on this rock, I will build my church. Basically, on this statement that you just made, that I am the savior of the world, on that, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, this is where geography really matters. Jesus makes this statement in Caesarea Philippi. That's where they're at. In Caesarea Philippi. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I mean, he wasn't standing in, in Life Church, sitting at Life Church, you know, because we could get a, a good pep rally going on here, right? We could like, yeah, we're the great. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we'll all get excited about that. But he wasn't here saying, I'm going to build my church. We would all get excited if Jesus was standing here and said, guess what, guys? I'm going to build my church. He wasn't standing inside the four walls of a church. He wasn't in the temple in Jerusalem saying, I'm going to build my church. No, he was in Caesarea Philippi, a place of darkness, a place of brokenness, a place of lostness. That's where he was when he makes this statement, I'm going to build my church, a place filled with, with worship of false gods. And he's there and he says, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. So carved out in the mountains of Caesarea Philippi are these little caves. <clears throat> and all these caves pretty much were, were pagan temples, places where they would worship other gods. One of those caves was called the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell. And the reason it was called that is because there was this bubbling spring of water that would come out of that. Uh, it was in the cave. And in that bubbling spring, they, 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 they thought they couldn't really reach the bottom of the spring. And so it was so deep. So they understood it to be a gateway or a pathway or an entrance from, you know, from which, you know, the underworld, from which demons and whatnot could come out. That's what they believed of. And they called it the gates of Hades. It was thought that it was a gateway to the underworld. In that particular temple, they worshipped the god Pan. It was a, a very uh, uh, animal kind of lust, worship that they practiced, pro ritual prostitution, bestiality. They even had infant sacrifices that would happen in that particular cave. It was a real place of darkness. And so Jesus takes his disciples there, and I imagine his disciples are trembling. Can you imagine? They're trembling. I, I, we, there was a, a village I had to go to when we were in Bangladesh. I had to go to, it was called Ambadi. And Ambadi was this... 100% Hindu village, never, you know, no Christians there, but we had heard that there was a particular person in the village that wanted to know more about Jesus, and so we had gone there. And I remember going to this village, and I have to be, I was a little bit spooked, because you got there right around dusk, and there was this, um, this, uh, uh, I'm not sure what they call puja or something, it was like a little, little, uh, uh Shrine, or yeah, shrine, that's it. My wife's, my wife's shrine, you idiot. That's what she said. That's what she said, by the way. There's a little shrine, and on the shrine, there was this like blood splattered on it. And I looked up, I'm like, whoa, where am I coming? It felt a little scary. I felt outnumbered, right? So Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And I imagine his disciples are also a little scared. Andrew's probably like, hey, okay, Jesus, I'll go with you, but don't tell my mom <laughs> that I came here with you because she might get mad at me. She might be mad at you for telling, take, bringing me here, you know? He brings his disciples there, and it's a place of brokenness, it's a place of lostness, of hopelessness. And he stands there and he says, listen, guys, let me tell you something. 
this is where I will build my church. Yeah, it's easy to build your church here with us. But he says, no, this is where I will build my church. In this place of darkness and, and lostness and hopelessness, that is where I'm going to build my church. And I have thankful to say that today in Ambadi, we have several churches in that little village. Because Jesus stands in Ambadi and says, guess what? This is where I'm going to build my church. Amen. You see, the church doesn't avoid the gates of hell. The church storms the gates of hell. Now, we hear this, and when we think about this Caesarea Philippi worship, we want to think, well, it's a little bit antiquated, right? I mean, that was back then. Back then, yeah, they worshiped other gods, and back then, you know, they had these weird beliefs that demons were coming out of a, a well, a spring well, you know, it was kind of all weird. And so we say to ourselves, we're a little bit more sophisticated now. We don't really buy into that stuff. We don't really believe that stuff. But are we really that much more sophisticated? I mean, aren't, aren't false gods really the same everywhere? Just the temples have changed a little bit? Like, isn't really like a porn site just another temple to a false god? Or a dating app just another temple to a false god? Or the 70 hours that you spend at work sacrificing your family and your children and your health for success and power, isn't that just another temple to a false god? Or maybe a university campus where we, where we worship secular humanism, where we worship our own ingenuity and our own intellect. Isn't that just another temple to a false god? These are all temples to a false god. So Jesus brings them to this place and it's not comfortable, it's not easy, it's broken, it's shameful. He looks around, he says, yep, this is the place. This is where I'm going to build my church, right here. In verse 18, he uses the language, he says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, when we read that, it's easy for us to think, oh, it's kind of like a defensive thing that the church got going on. Like, the gates of hell are attacking us, and we're, we're the church. We're going to stand strong to the gates of hell that are attacking us. That's the idea that we get, the picture that we can get from reading that passage, but that's really not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that the enemies, that enemy in John 10.10, 10, the enemy has fortified himself. The enemy has put walls around himself. Let's, let's look at it this way. Death has fortified itself. It's put a wall around itself. It's put this huge gate. And what Jesus is saying, that gate, as big as it is, as strong, as seemingly as impossible to penetrate as you can think and imagine, that gate's not going to stand against the church advancing. He's not talking about defensive posture. He's talking about offense, right? See, when the church plays defense, we're oftentimes focused on stopping something, keeping it out of the four walls of the church, keeping it away from our kids. And so we live in this idea of just, you know, we're stopping it. But when the church is, is on offense, we're focused more on starting something. In fact, maybe you've grown up in church where this, that's what it was all about. Like prevent defense, right? Prevent defense. Just, just keep it all away. You know, everything is bad. Everything's wrong. Just keep it all away. But you need to understand that's not the tone of the New Testament. That's not what you see. That's not what you see happen with the early church. The early church, they were, they had no power of their own. They had no political strength. They had no, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't have a lot of numbers. And yet they went into the darkest places that existed in that time and day. 
And they didn't try to stop everything bad that was happening. They went in there with a message, a message that was transforming and just would, would revolutionize the, 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 every town, every place they went to. The message of love and grace of Jesus Christ. And that's how they changed the world. That's how we will change the world, right? So when the church is playing defense, we tend to be known for the things that we're against. When the church is playing offense, we tend to be known for the things that we're for. And so maybe that's how it was for you growing up. Like you really didn't understand the gospel, but you knew you shouldn't dance. <laughs> okay, square dancing was okay, but that was a little edgy, so you just did it at night. You didn't tell anybody, you know. <laughs> you didn't really understand the gospel, but you knew you weren't supposed to play cards. I remember when I first became a Christian, like the youth leaders, the, they were like sponsors, house we'd go every friday night to our sponsor's house and she would say okay we're gonna play spades this is the only game that we're allowed to play <laughs> and don't tell the adults <laughs> that was funny it was just we, we didn't understand we didn't know what the gospel was, but we knew we should not do this we really understand the gospel we knew we shouldn't have tattoos and i mean i could go on and on and on this prevent de defense mentality and our posture was these are all the things that we're against. It was a defensive posture. But Jesus invites us into an offensive posture. Instead of thinking about the things that we're opposed to, we're thinking about the opportunities that we have in front of us. That's really what we should be thinking about. What are the opportunities? And so we live in an incredible time to be the church. We don't always hear it that way because, again, a church on defense can only see the bad stuff. We don't see opportunity. We see bad things. But we live in an incredible time of opportunity. I'm telling you, this is an incredible time. A time in which the Great Commission can be fulfilled in our generation. Where the gospel can go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And because we believe that so much, because we believe this is not, we don't sit around thinking, man, it's just things are so bad around us. That's not how we're thinking. We're sitting around and saying, how, God, all these opportunities, how can we possibly, how can we possibly just step into these opportunities that you put in front of us? What can we possibly do? Because we believe that so much this month, we're launching a campus in Cedar Rapids. This month. We're going to start having core team meetings on the 22nd of this month because we so believe that God has not called us to isolate in this little corner of Corville. That there are many, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have yet to meet Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in, 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 up north in Lynn County. And he's called us as a church to advance, to advance, to advance. A good example of this is, um, is, uh, is found in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, but he's writing from the city of Ephesus. Okay, so this, just understand that. There's something, you read this text and you can easily slip by it. You don't even notice it. But Paul is kind of presenting a paradox that we don't always think about very often. He says in verse, six, in verse 8, chapter 16, but I will, stay on, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. And I'm going to stay here until a certain feast day. Stay on, Ephesus, on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. So he talks, he talks about this great opportunity that he has. Now when he speaks of this opportunity, he doesn't speak of it in terms the way we understand opportunity. When we think of opportunity, what we think is easy. You know, wide open doors. Exciting. That's how we think of opportunity. This is what Paul says. A great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. Paul's definition of opportunity is there's opposition, 
therefore there's an opportunity. There's opposition, therefore there's an opportunity. I mean, it's not even, there's not even a period between, he says, I have this great opportunity and there are many who oppose me. I mean, he's just like, Psh! it's like, it's how he believes. Because he understands this idea that Jesus has come to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so opposition does not keep the church from moving forward. In fact, Paul understands it so well that he knows that the, that the darker the place is, the brighter the light gets to shine. The darker the place is, the more Jesus gets to do the things that he always does. And so, what if, what if, what if Jesus, what if we as a church, what if, what if we, despite all the, the effort and the challenges that we might find in starting this campus in Cedar Rapids, and believe me, it's a lot of effort, and there's a lot of financial investment into it, and there's a lot of challenges that, and challenges that we're not even sure what they will be. There will be challenges, we know. But what if we decided, that despite all of that, we're going to do it anyway? What if the worst that could happen is that a few hundred people would come to know Jesus? Maybe even a couple thousand people would come to know Jesus because a church is advancing. What if, what if in this increasingly secular environment that we find ourselves in, we decide that instead of isolating and hunkering down and standing behind these four walls, cursing the outside, we decide we're going to love them. We're going to demonstrate love to our community. We're going to let them know that we are here because God has us here for them. You've heard me say this before. I've said it all the time. I want us to be a church that if, we, if, the walls of, if the doors of life church would close down, that we were no longer in existence, our community would say, where's that church? We missed that church. That's the church I want us to be. So what if in this environment that we live in, secular humanism and all that stuff that we accept, that we get to be known as a church that loves this community more than anything else? What if in this culture where racism is such a hot topic. What if there was an army of people from Life Church that said, we're going to go serve at Faith Academy in Iowa City on a weekly basis. We're going to help tutor kids at school that is 90% of its population are underserved minorities. What if we decided that's what we're going to do? That's how we are going to make an impact in this world. What if the women of Life Church said, hey, you know what, we're going to take it on as a mission to partner with the Des Moines Dream Center. And there are these, these, these opportunities that they have going into these strip clubs that we're gonna package these nice little gift sets, gift packages, and we're gonna deliver it to these women in these strip clubs and let them know that we're praying for them, that Jesus loves them, that despite the fact that they might be trapped and they may not consider themselves trapped, but they're trapped in this, in this, in this industry of stripping that really God is there, God loves them, God cares for them. What if we did it? Listen, it would not be easy it would not. It would be hard. But that's what the church does. Right? That's what storming the gates of hell looks like. That's what you and I are called to. We've been made to be challenged. My wife knows that very well about me. She knows that I'm a sucker for a challenge. Like, I'm, I'm really good at, at doing my chores so that I can watch the Dallas Cowboys play. Like, I get them all done, and she'll say, did you get it all done? Now, she won't say that, but, uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll get to watch the Cowboys play. 
And then she'll come up and she'll say, hey, Rich. Like, she knows me. She's like, hey, Rich, like, you know, there's this heavy piece of furniture that needs to be moved, but it's, it's really heavy. I don't think you could do it by yourself, so maybe you should call one of the boys to help. She, that's all she had to do. I will, get up from a, I will get up from watching a Cowboys game to start moving that, to prove the point that I could do that by myself. And then I'll get it halfway across the room, and then I'll realize, wow, she just played me. She, she knows. She knows. She's smiling because she knows that's so true. <clears throat> We've all been made for a challenge. And that's true for me. That's true for you. And when we try to live our life without that, when we try to live our life for comfort and ease, when we try to live our lives just not really sacrificing, it begins to affect us. And it doesn't just affect our mission and purpose, but it begins to affect our family, our, our marriage dynamics, our, our, how our children are doing. It affects it all. When we don't live for that challenge that we've been all invited to be part of building this church, right? There's a school of thought that if you want a lot of people in church, like there's a lot of people here today. I'm so proud of this church. But there's a school of thought that if you want a lot of people in church, then you should make it comfortable. You should make it comfortable, easy. Now, let me just say this. I want Life Church to be a place where, where you feel welcome, where you walk through these doors and you're greeted by people that love you and care for you. And... But Jesus didn't come to build a church that was comfortable or easy. If that's what we want, then maybe the church should be more like a cruise ship. You know what a cruise ship does, right? Like, there's all these fancy, really high-end cruises that you can get on. And they're known for, you know, comfort, all excessive comfort, you know, buffets, unlimited buffets. You can go at 2 o'clock in the morning and eat whatever you want to eat. Amazing, fun th activities you can do, in the, you know, on the, on the boat. These exotic destinations that you can stop at. But here's the problem is you can't storm a beach on a cruise ship. You need a Higgins boat. And so here at Life Church, we're not going to be a group of isolationists. We're not going to settle for a life of neutrality. Instead, we're going to storm the gates of hell. That's what we're going to do. And it's starting this month with Cedar Rapids. I mean, we've been doing it for 14 years. That's what we're going to do. And so if you're part of this church, if you say, God, I am, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in with the church of Jesus Christ. I'm in with life church. And so if that's you, then I'm going to ask you to put on a helmet, strap on a rifle, put on that 80 pound rucksack and just get in this Higgins boat called life church. And let's storm the gates of hell. That's what we've been called to do. That's who we are. It's not about comfort and ease. And yes, I want God to solve all of your difficulties and challenges. Let's all stand. I know my time is way out, but I know that God wants to, I believe that God wants to solve the difficulties and the challenges that you have, whether it's your marriage or your children or your finances. I believe that God can do all of that. But our primary call is to join Jesus in building his church, a church where the gates of hell cannot prevail against. That's our primary call. That's what all of us are called to. So I want to invite you on that journey. And here's the deal. Maybe the problem is that you're living a neutral life. 
it's like to be in neutral. If you drive a stick, put that thing in neutral, and you can give gas all day long. It's not going anywhere. I don't want that kind of life. I want a life where I'm engaged. A life where the church that I've been a part of is unstoppable. That's what I want. And I have a sneaking suspicion that's exactly what each and every one of you guys want as well. You don't want to be in neutral. 